Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. Okay. So this series, Through the Gospel of Matthew, I've called Unmasking Majesty, because the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is to show us that Jesus is the King. In the first two chapters, we've seen a number of ways that Matthew has done that. And then a couple of, mo- a couple of months, a month ago, uh, we were looking at John the Baptist, how he came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the king and to announce the king's arrival. We spoke about how that fulfilled a prophecy from the book of Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus was born. And we saw that John the Baptist was baptizing people in order to prepare them for Christ's coming. And that was only half of what John was to do. In this section of Matthew, we're going to see the second half of John the Baptist's job, which is presenting majesty. So you might have seen it on the sign on the way and it says presenting majesty. But before we read the passage, let's just pray. God, I just thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a two-edged sword um, that divides just the wrong things that we're even thinking, Lord, from, from who you are and the right thing to, to the right things, Lord. Thank you for its power and for that you just that you've given it to us, Lord. That we're able to um, learn from you through what you have recorded yourself about yourself and about who you are. And we just pray that you would help us to help me to speak from your word properly, and that it would be what you want to say and what you want people to hear, and that you would help us to hear from your word as well. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So it's. Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 to 17 and it says then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him John would have prevented him saying I need to be baptized by you but do you come to me but Jesus answered him let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and then John consented And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So John is out in the wilderness. If you were here last time, we talked a bit about wilderness, but I'm going to recap it because I know it was only Dad and Caitlin. (laughs) The wilderness is the opposite of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a luscious space space that God made and he looked at it and he called it very good. Wilderness and desert was never God's idea. But because man sinned, the earth was affected and that's where wilderness comes from. But notice that that's where God is at work. God is at work in the wilderness. He's at work in the place of sin. Not only is John the Baptist in the wilderness, but he's doing a very specific kind of activity there. He has a very specific job, and that's to baptize people as preparation for the coming of the king. I think one of the things that's really amazing about this story is the sense of revival that it has. It talks about large crowds being gathered, and even people who would have been opposed to to John and to Jesus later coming out to see what was going on. One commentator on Matthew, 
he says that it hadn't been like this in Israel since the days of Ezra hundreds of years before. God was on the move amongst his people, preparing their hearts for the coming of his Messiah. And today, I think God is on the move preparing people's hearts for the coming of his Messiah into their own lives. I spoke a bit about baptism and what John was doing with baptism last time. And you will eventually be able to hear that on Calvary Limerick's podcast. It's running a little bit behind, but the live video is still there on the Facebook page. So you can see it and you can hear it in full if you decide to. But in summary, baptism isn't a way of cleansing sins, nor is it about bringing people into the kingdom of God. This baptism that you're talking about is symbolic of what Jesus would do eventually and how Jesus will die for sin to forgive and cleanse us. It's not baptism that did that, because if it was, then John was saving people before Jesus died, which doesn't make sense. But what it does do is point forward and symbolize what Jesus would do. And I think when you understand that, it makes Jesus' baptism a little less weird. Because when you first read it, that Jesus comes to be baptized by John, it makes you kind of scratch your head. You might, you might even be like John and think, yeah, no, don't let him do that. Stop him from being baptized. Well, I think that kind of shows that we just don't fully get what it is. We don't understand that it isn't baptism that saves us, but it's a symbol of our salvation. And his baptism, Jesus' baptism, is recorded in each of the four Gospels, which makes it a significant event. And we don't know exactly where it happened, but it was somewhere along the River Jordan. If you go to Israel, there are a number of places that will tell you that that's where it happened. And you can go see all of them if you want. But it's not important where he was baptized. It's important that he was baptized. But he didn't need forgiveness. He didn't need to prepare for the coming of the king because he is the king. So if he didn't need to be baptized in the sense that other people were being baptized, why did he come to John and be baptized? I wonder what John thought. It says that he attempted to stop him, to prevent him from being baptized. And his message which we saw in verse 2 of this chapter last time, was that people should repent and confess their sins and then be baptised. But here is one who has never sinned coming to be baptised. But I think there's five reasons for it. And we'll go through them as quick as I can. The first was that Jesus is obedient to the Father. And we see this in verse 15 when Jesus tells John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. As Christians, we often talk about Jesus' death and his resurrection and the importance of both of those things for our journey to salvation. But one of the things we forget to talk about is Jesus' life, which is funny because when you think about it, his life is considerably longer than the four days that his death and resurrection takes place in. But Jesus' life is as much a part of our salvation as his death and his resurrection is. And that might surprise you, but it is. Because you see... Jesus was the only human that ever lived who lived a perfectly obedient life. He never sinned, and had he sinned, he could not have paid the price. The life that Jesus lived, which he lived in obedience to God, fulfilled the law for us. That means that we're no longer subject to the law in the Old Testament. Instead, we're saved by grace through faith. And Jesus' fulfilling of the law means that we don't have to void or nullify the law as Christians, because that wouldn't make sense. Instead, Jesus fulfilled it. He kept it perfectly, so then we have freedom to make mistakes. 
James says in chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of all of it. If Jesus didn't live the obedient life he lived, one mistake would be enough to condemn all of us. But he did, and grace allows us the freedom in Christ to make mistakes, to come to the Lord and be forgiven. This isn't to say that we go on sinning so that grace may abound all the more. Paul said, heaven forbid about that. As we talk about grace, it's good to remember that obedience to God is the goal of our Christian life. As we grow in Christ, by grace, we become more like Christ. And it's the, that's the very core being of what being a Christian is. To be like Christ means to be obedient to God. But that's not something that we do in our own strength. It's not so, something that we can muster up in ourselves. We can rely on God's grace, God's Spirit working in us, to change us and make us more and more into the image of Christ. And daily that can mean knowing that we should do something, maybe wanting to do the opposite, but sacrificing what we want to do to do what we know we should do. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what the disciples did. That's what Paul did. They didn't do what they wanted when that was in opposition (coughs) to the obedience to God. So I think that's the first reason that Jesus was baptized is obedience. The second reason is it gives approval to John's ministry. By Jesus showing up and getting involved, it was like God giving his stamp of approval to what John was doing. Later on in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders would be trying to trick him and trap him with their theological questions. And at one point, Jesus says he'll only answer their question if they first answer something he asks. And his question is, where does John the Baptist's authority come from? From God or from man? So Jesus is showing in that question, but also in his baptism, that the ministry of John was a ministry from God. You remember that previously I've said that one of Matthew's key interests is showing how Jesus fulfills prophecies in the Old Testament. Back in verse 3, we have that quote from Isaiah, and I think it was in chapter 40. If Jesus hadn't shown up, then John wouldn't be the fulfillment of that prophecy. He was to prepare the way for the king like a herald does. And then he would be presenting that king. And that's what's happening here. John is presenting majesty to them. So Jesus being baptized by John tells us that John really is sent from God. Really is God's messenger. He's the Messiah's forerunner. A third thing we can see from the baptism of Jesus is the humility of our king. I almost give this message a name like humble majesty. Because this is really what Jesus is. And we can't stress that enough. First, notice where it takes place. Jesus isn't being baptized on the front steps of the palace, nor is he being baptized in the the temple. He would have had the right to do that, and he would have had the might to do that. But he's being baptized out in the wilderness, away from the public eye. He could have had a lavish ceremony with hundreds of thousands of participants, maybe hundreds of thousands of angels even. But it seems like he just got in line and walked behind people with people behind him up to John. And then even as well as that, the fact that Jesus would allow a sinner like John to baptize him shows how humble he is. Jesus is the only person who ever lived that has the right to be boastful. Not only was he perfect, sinless, and obedient to God, 
he is also God himself. And by him and through him all things were made. That's stuff to be boastful about. When we make something or we paint something or we write something or we achieve something, we get proud and sometimes we get boastful because of it. We think we're the bee's knees. But here's Jesus, the maker of the universe, God himself, totally humble. I love what Paul says about him in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Humility is hard for us a lot of the time. We're quite proud people. Pride was the first sin. Probably, definitely Satan's, probably also Eve's, because I think they both believed they knew better than God. Satan wanted to be God. Eve wanted, or Eve believed God was wrong about the fruit and that she knew better because the serpent had enlightened her. I've said it before, and I'll say it almost every time we meet together, that one of the Calvary Limerick cores is to be a community characterized by the grace of God. Grace is important for us, but in the Bible there's something that goes hand in hand with grace, and that's humility. When something's important, you'll notice I'll say it a lot. And I don't get that from nowhere. When God wants to stress that something is important, that there's something we should listen to and take notice of, he repeats it. You may have heard the phrase, <clears throat> God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble before. It's actually in the Bible seven different times that I, I could find at least. Psalm 138.6, Proverbs 3.34, Proverbs 29.23, Matthew 23.12, Luke 1.52, James 4.6, and 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Seven times. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection. So if it's only there seven times, that's great. If there are more, that's even better. So want to know how to be spiritually perfect? God gives grace to the humble. It's important. We can't receive grace from God unless we realize that we aren't the bee's knees, that we need him and that we need his grace and his love. In Christian humility isn't a task. It isn't a work. It's recognizing the truth of your helpless state to save yourself or even to better yourself before God and crying out to him, to ask him to do what you cannot do. Jesus was so humble, humble enough to leave heaven, to die on a cross, to take our sin and shame, and to even be baptized by his cousin John. Linked to the humility of Christ is the fourth reason Jesus was baptized. It identified him with sinners. He went down into the water just like they did. He was baptized just like they were, or they will be. Jesus identified with us. When we talk about Jesus to come, coming to live on earth, we use the word incarnation. It means coming into meat or into flesh, basically. Jesus came into our world. He was tempted as we are tempted. He experienced sorrow, pain, and rejection firsthand. He was tired, stressed, hungry, angry, and bothered, just like we are. He was happy, he laughed, he cried, and he rejoiced, just like we do. Jesus was all about identifying with sinners. So much so the Pharisees and religious leaders in Mark 2.16 ask the disciples about why he's always with sinners. Another of Calvary Limerick's cores 
from way back in our first meeting at Easter was that we're going to be people who are running to Limerick with the gospel. And another was that we'd be a disciple-making church. Jesus is such a great example to us. We can't go running to the people of Limerick with this good news that we have from the comfort of our couches. We need to be friends with people who aren't yet Christians, speaking into their lives and their situations as Jesus modelled for us. Jesus identified with sinners, and we, as sinners, saved, are able to identify with sinners too, while being firmly held in the powerful arm of God. You'll notice Jesus was aware he's on a mission, and if you're friends with people, being aware of where you come from and where you're going in Christ can help you to not get lost in sin as well, because a lot of people are afraid of that. Jesus didn't do that. He made the way clear, clear for us. And I think that's part of the fourth reason he was baptized. And the fifth one, Jesus was baptized because it was a sign of his true baptism. And what was his true baptism? It was his death and resurrection. In Psalm 42, verse 7, we read about God's waves of judgment crashing over the psalmist. It's an idea you'll see in the book of Jonah as Jonah attempted to flee from God's will for his life on a boat as well. At the cross, Jesus himself experienced those crashing waves of God's judgment for our sin. And then Galatians 2, verse 20, which is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life, life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When we're baptized, this is, is what we're symbolizing, symbolically showing that we've been crucified with Christ. And just as he died and he went down into the grave, so we die to our sins and we're immersed in water. And just as he was raised to life, so we've been raised to eternal life in him and we rise up again from the water. Jesus' baptism didn't save him because he didn't need to be saved. It doesn't cleanse him of sin because he doesn't need that. It's like our baptism. It's symbolic of his death and resurrection which would come later in his ministry. As we move on from his baptism to what happened just next, I want to quote a guy called Green. He said, it's difficult to understand the logic of those Christian groups today who claim they have no need of baptism. Their master found it needful and disciples are not higher than their Lord. So we have seen that Jesus was baptized and why he was baptized. There's still two verses to look at in this section. I'm going to read them again. They're verses 16 and 17. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. People who criticize the Bible will often say that there is no reference to the Trinity in Scripture. They'll say something like, Show me where the Bible says God is Trinity or that God is triune. They mean the same thing. If they know the word triune, which they probably don't. The Bible never uses the word Trinity. That's not a word that God used to describe himself. It's a word that later theologians came up with when they were trying to describe God. And the concept that God is one in three in one. But just because the word doesn't appear there doesn't mean that the Trinity doesn't. And here's one of the best passages in the Bible for the Trinity, because all three are there. Jesus, God the Son, is rising up out of the water. A dove, God the Spirit, is descending to rest on him. And then a voice from heaven, God the Father, is heard. 
All three are present at one moment. And this can help you with some bad ideas about what the Trinity is too. Because some people say that the persons of God are like three roles, like how you could be a mother, a daughter, and an employee at the same time. We can see that's wrong because all three are here present together as three individuals, not three expressions within Christ himself. We've been looking at who Jesus is, why he was baptized. Now we're going to look a little more at the other two persons of the Trinity. We don't have time to go into everything that the Holy Spirit is today. That would take a series of its own. But what I want to focus on is what it says here. What this piece of Matthew is saying about this particular appearance and action of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 says, And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. There's a link here to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, which says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Jesus was there at creation. We know from John chapter 1 that all things were created through him, and the Holy Spirit was there too, hovering over the earth. But here... He comes to rest. The Holy Spirit comes to rest on Jesus' shoulder or head, we're not told. But he comes to rest. He's not hovering over the water anymore. The Holy Spirit came to rest on Jesus as a way to reassure him. The ministry of Christ is the ministry of God, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're in this plan together, and Jesus was being reminded of that at this moment. He is God, yes, but he's also human like us. So he needed to be reminded, or it helped him to be reminded. Maybe he didn't need it, but it helped. It also reminds Jesus that the Holy Spirit's ministry is his ministry. That sounds the same, but it's sort of the other way around. They are doing the work of the Father together, as it were. For us, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives can be a similar reminder that we are to be about our Father's business, the business of kingdom building in our lives and in those we come to contact with by the power of that same Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. I have often wondered, and I don't know the answer to this, if Jesus lived his life on earth in the power of the Holy Spirit or using his own godly power. Often it seems Jesus chose to live as a human being and walked in relationship with and in power with the Holy Spirit of God. That's not to say he was only human or that he couldn't have accessed his divine power. He is God and he is man. And he could access that power whenever he liked. But sometimes it seems when he's called to do so, he doesn't. He just relies on the Spirit. Anyway, I don't know the answer to that question. And perhaps one of you does. That would be a great conversation to have sometime. Have you ever wondered why the Holy Spirit came as a dove? Up until I prepared for this and saw the imagery here, um, I'd never really thought about it. Which is funny because... A descending dove is the Calvary Chapel logo and it's part of the Calvary Limerick logo that's been up there. You probably know that the dove is a sign of peace, unless you're one of those Martians from that Mars Attacks movie where they get scared when they release doves and they go to war with the whole earth. Most people on earth would recognize the dove as a symbol of peace. But I don't think that's why the Holy Spirit appeared as a dove. I think that symbolism has probably come later, but I didn't research into that too much so I could be wrong. If there's any doveologists, you can let me know later. I think the Holy Spirit was trying to get us to think of certain things, and there's two things that he was trying to get us to think of. The first, I think, is Noah's Ark. Remember when the Ark came to rest, 
Noah waited some time and he sent out a bird and then he sent out a dove and it returned with an olive branch, a symbol of peace in those days. So maybe that's where that comes from, but maybe not. And then he sends out the dove again and it doesn't return because it had found somewhere to nest. But what's the point of reminding people about that? Noah's ark was, was a way of salvation. Really, you could call it God's ark. He was going to flood the earth, but he made this way out, the ark. Just like he made a way of salvation in Noah's day, and that way of salvation points to Christ, so too he's made a way of salvation in our day, which is Jesus. Even more so, Noah knew those eight people and all those animals in the ark were saved because the dove pointed the way of salvation. It showed Noah there were things growing on the earth again. And then it showed Noah that the earth was hab habitable again. They were saved. Now the Holy Spirit comes as a dove and lands on the Messiah's shoulder, or maybe his head, pointing to the one who will bring our salvation. And the second thing I think he wants us to think about is Jonah. The word Jonah means dove. And Jesus said that he would give people the sign of Jonah, just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three days. And just as Jonah was found alive after the three days, so too would Jesus be found alive after the three days. God is very much in the details. He orchestrates all these minute things to show us his plan to his people in symbolic ways. It's amazing when you sit down and you peel back the layers and see the things that God is saying through what he is doing and through what other people in the Bible are doing. The Holy Spirit comes as a dove and brings this symbolic message of salvation and of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. If God can orchestrate the minute details of Jesus' baptism, you can be sure that he is at work in the minute details of your life too. We don't see the full picture when we're journeying through life. But one day I'm sure we'll be surprised to see how God was working and God was planning and God was moving in the small details of our lives that we just haven't understood up until that point to bring us to a greater relationship with him and to work all things out for good. There's one more thing to say about the dove here. And we need to link it to John's gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 29 to 34, I'm not going to read it all. <clears throat> we get the story of what seems to be the next day. And Jesus comes back to John the Baptist. John the gospel writer likes to record pieces of the story that the other gospels don't. So we get a conversation from the John the Baptist to the crowd about Jesus. And he says, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, I have said before that one will come after me who ranks before me, who is greater than me because he's before me. And he says as well that I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the coming of the Holy Spirit on Jesus after his baptism is what God had told John would confirm who exactly the Son of God is, who the one who baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Spirit is, who the Messiah is. We saw John try to stop Jesus being baptized before. So obviously he had suspicions or he had these ideas about who Jesus was. Because I'm sure he would have grown up hearing stories from his mother, his father, who were Elizabeth and Zachariah, and his mother's cousin Mary and her husband Joseph. But here God was speaking directly to him. 
when he saw the dove, that's the Messiah. And I think that's important for us. If you're from a Christian family or a Christian background, it's important to make your faith your own. It's important to be having experiences and times with God yourself that are not just part of your family. John was brought up with the knowledge of what happened around his own birth and Jesus' birth. I have no doubt about that. But later in his life, he sought relationship with God himself. And this allowed God to use him, yeah, but also allowed him to show John things and bring him places he would never have been able to experience without that personal relationship. So is your relationship with God a personal relationship? Are you close to him by yourself without your family or your Christian friends in the room? Or is it more a thing you do because your family do it? So I'd encourage you to search out God for yourself, to seek him, to learn from him, and to have your own relationship with unique dynamics and experiences to that of your friends and family. God promises you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So seek and find him for yourself, your relationship, your own relationship as well as that with your family and friends. So we come to the last section of the, the passage. Verse 17 says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I don't know if you remember what we said some time back, maybe in the first of these series, that God had been silent for some time. About 400 years had passed between Malachi, the last of the prophets in the Old Testament, and the birth of Jesus, which was when God started speaking again through his angels. But here we have the first actual instance of God speaking himself in 400 plus years. The age-long silence has ended. God is once again talking to Israel and he's talking about Jesus. In fact, God speaks in a voice that can be heard three times in the Gospels. Here at Jesus' baptism is the first, then later at the transfiguration is the second, and third is as Jesus is approaching the cross. Chuck Smith, who founded the Calvary Chapel movement, once said that there are voices all around us that we can't hear unless we tune into them. He was talking about radio waves. They're passing around us, a number of different stations going through this room right now. In our gardens, our places of work, our houses, our cars, schools, buses. In the same way for us today, the Lord is always speaking to us. We just need to tune into him by prayer, by reading the Bible, those things that they call the means of grace, that just get us in tune with our Father and allow us to hear his voice. Sometimes that voice will be, or at least seem to be, audible, like at Jesus' baptism here. But more often it's a still small voice in our spirit that is communicating with God. One writer noted, in the past God spoke to his son, today he is speaking through his son. What God says here in the words that are said is an echo of Psalm 2 verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In Acts 13.33, we learn that this begetting refers to Jesus' resurrection, not to his birth in Bethlehem, or to his baptism here, as if God were adopting a plain, normal man called Jesus and making him divine. Again, it's pointing forward to what Jesus will do for us, just like a symbol of the dove and the symbolism involved in baptism as well. Finally, note that this in this statement, by this statement, God means that he's pleased with everything that Jesus has done up until now. Sometimes we wonder why Jesus waited until he was 30 years old to start his ministry, but it was part of the plan. Jesus' hidden years in Nazareth, as they're sometimes called, were pleasing to the Father. 
Certainly this would have been a big encouragement for Jesus as he began his public ministry. And as we end, I just want to say something to you, Christian, brother and sister. God is well pleased with you. We often have a picture of God in our minds that sees him as a mean judge, just waiting for us to step out of line so he can send those lightning bolts with our names on them our way. That's a bad image of God. That's not what God is like. That's not how God feels towards you. When you're in Christ, God doesn't see you through a lens of judgment, punishment, or sin. He sees you through the lens of Jesus, with whom he is well pleased. He is well pleased with you. Listen to what the Bible says about how God sees you. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty one who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He bought me, brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delights in me. And God says, you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature in your hand. The cre Sorry, this is about God. We will call and he will answer. He will long for the creature his hands have made. And it says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget, declares the Lord. I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for Jesus' obedience to you, for how he went and he was baptized, Lord, in humility and encouraging John and being encouraged himself by your, your voice to him and, and by the Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, we just pray for your encouragement on us as well, that the Holy Spirit in us um, will be speaking to us, encouraging us and supporting us, Lord, through this coming week. And we thank you so much for your love and just that reminder of it, that you are well pleased with us. because Not because of what we've done, because we're sinners, but because we are able to be in Christ and that you see us through a lens of Christ. And we thank you that because of that, you can say that, that you are well pleased with us and we can rejoice in that you're being well pleased, Lord. Lord we just pray that this week, that those things would be in our mind, Lord, and in our hearts, and your Holy Spirit would be reminding us of them, and that we'd be able to talk to other people um, about this love that we have experienced and found in you, because you've made, you will be making it so real to us in this next coming week. In your name we pray. Amen.